Hello and welcome to Nevermind the Bar Charts with myself, Mark Pack. Welcome also to Rob Blackie, who's come back on the show to talk about Donald Trump once again. Rob and I, you may recall, spoke earlier in the year about what the Liberal Democrats could learn from Donald Trump. And now the US election is nearly almost just about in. Let's see what early lessons are from the election result about what else the Liberal Democrats can learn. So welcome to the show, Rob. Thank you. Thank you for having me back on. Um, I guess a good starting point in terms of thinking about possible lessons from the US elections is that Joe Biden looks to have polled better than other Democrats. And so perhaps part of the lessons we can draw from that is how was Biden different from other Democrats? Now, he obviously was up against Trump and he had that perhaps as an advantage or definitely as an advantage. But on the other hand, he also pitched rather more as a conciliator rather than, a, you know, a, a lot of other people in the Democrats were were running, one could almost say, much angrier campaigns than he was. Um, so what's your initial take on what the lessons are that we should draw from not just Biden's victory, but particularly the fact that he seems to have done better than other Democrats? I think you're just right. Biden, as a man, suits the times we're in. Uh, for all of Trump's strengths, uh, he was an exhausting person to have as president. Um, and the public in America seemed to have just about wanted to have a calmer time. Biden, as a, as a moderate guy and a very well-established brand as being a moderate, um, has been well-known as a moderate guy for 40 years, is not somebody you can easily paint as being an extremist. Uh, so I think that's the first thing, is Biden was right for the times. Uh, I think, secondly, Biden did talk a lot about the things that mattered to the public, which were the economy, the health, uh, and handling the coronavirus crisis. Um, and those, yeah, in any election, focusing on what your audience cares about is a sensible thing to do. Um, now, I think the Democrats this year did spend a lot of this year talking about other things, which, while they are important in their own right, I think the, the swing voters in the middle of the spectrum didn't think they were quite as important. Um, and I would actually say something like Black White Lives Matter is probably an example of that. It's an extremely important issue, but for your average voter in the middle of the spectrum, they don't see how it affects everyday life. And while they'll actually sign up to the idea uh, that racism, institutional racism in America is a real thing and a bad thing, uh, it's not actually very important for everyday lives. And so I think what happened is when they saw the Democrats talking about that a lot, implicitly they thought the uh, Democrats uh, cared less about things like the economy and jobs, which are much more immediate to people's everyday lives. Yeah, I wonder about that because I guess the counter argument is that if you look at the research we have into people's attitudes towards racism in the US, is there's been quite a big and welcome shift in attitudes triggered by the Black Lives Matters protests. And so I think it is a bit of a double-edged question, perhaps best epitomised by the defund the police slogan, because when that started getting used and I thought, I, you know, what on earth is this about? Um, you know, let's go and read up what is this slogan? Why are people talking about it? The thing that struck me was basically every explanation I found about the defund the police and what that was calling for started with some version of, well, when we say defund, we don't actually mean defund. And so I was pulled both ways. On the one hand, thinking this is a really poor slogan if you immediately have to explain that it doesn't mean what you th people think it means. On the other hand, 
it made me aware of an issue and read about things that a more moderate worded, a Biden form of words would have not caught the attention in anything like the same way. And so I, I wonder, I think certainly in the longer term, the the impact it seems like of things like the Black Lives Matters protests is going to be quite beneficial, you know, assuming that shift in opinion is sustained. Absolutely. And that's a dilemma, a really difficult dilemma for progressives. Um, and I think it's absolutely right. The public of uh, American public have moved because of Black Lives Matter in a very positive direction. Uh, I think the challenge is if you constantly ask people to eat their vegetables, uh, you can sound a bit naggy. Uh, and that's why it's like one of the reasons it's very hard to move the public fast on any issue. And when you talk about one thing, by definition, you're not talking about other things. Um, and uh, that's, I think, a, a real challenge uh, for, for the Democrats this year, which was to talk about the things that people felt mattered, most of them right now, just before a major election. Um, and I do think the Democrat brand is not strong enough in America at the moment uh, to s- sustain that tension. I wonder, though... Again, I think there's there's a counter argument there, which is if you say what matters most, what's most important in people's lives, there is the sort of the the moderate centrist dad extension of that argument, which would yeah. be talk about things like the economy, not don't talk about, um, you know, some of the more uh, controversial social issues and the like, you know, sort of stick stick really in that sense in the conventional political mainstream. The other argument, though, is to say, actually, look, if you are if you are in one of those categories where you are worried about being harassed or stopped by the police, you know, disproportionately, you that affects you know your your whole life every time you exit. I, and that's why I'm having, think, having this again. But this is this is why defund the police is is a truly terrible slogan. Mm-hmm. Um, because, as you say, every time anyone has to talk about it, the first thing they do is they have to explain why it doesn't mean what it sounds like it um, uh, means. And I saw a, a focus group of, of swing voters um, reported yesterday where the person running the focus group did exactly that. And one of the women in the focus group just stopped him and said, stop calling me stupid. I know what defund means. It means take away money, like fund D. It's not difficult to understand that. And so I think the point of a slogan is meant to sum up uh, an idea. And if it fails to do that, it is a failure as a slogan. And I absolutely agree with you on um, uh, why Black Lives Matter is relevant to so many people. Uh, I think the challenge is how do you explain that relevance to the broader population who aren't in fear of being harassed by the police? Or discrimination and i think that's where the better communicators explain it in a way that's relevant to everybody else um and uh you know say actually this is about jobs uh, and this is about the economy uh, and they link it back to people's everyday concerns and i think the uh, actually a, a closely related angle is what trump did is trump's framing of the election was that he was prioritizing the economy over coronavirus now we know from every rich country in the world that the only countries whose economies have done well recently have been ones who've managed to suppress the virus uh, through some level of lockdown and keep it suppressed through being very cautious um, and running um, uh, their you know 
their testing system well over the last six months. And we can look at Taiwan or Korea or Australia or New Zealand uh, or even Germany. And we can say all those places have gone, economies have gone well because they've tackled COVID. So it's a wrong argument, but superficially saying I'm not going to push a lockdown on you in the short term the way Trump did sounds appealing to people. And because the Democrats were less effective um, at countering that argument, uh, because they were spending time on other things, I think that did damage their brand. Uh, and I do think this is a real dilemma for progressives the whole time, which is how do we uh, explain things which are very important to 10% of the population uh, in a way that is understandable by 80% of the population? And this is a very hard thing to do. I, I would also note you would have thought um, that Trump's uh, support among black and uh, Latino voters would have gone down in this election, given all of this actually it went up. And that says to me, this is a very, very hard thing to communicate well. Yeah. Although I wonder if that was a reflection of, you know, Trump's appeal to deeply socially conservative people. And, you know, such people, you know, are, are in all, you know, in all sorts of communities. And, oh, uh, and absolutely, absolutely. But that's also uh, why I think the, uh, the assumption that everyone always has that blocks of voters move en masse is a very poor assumption. Averages are very useful to understand things, but you must never forget they're made up of lots of human be beings who are individual. Um, and there's lots of diversity within every group as well as between groups. And people will have different identities in, in different situations. Um, and sometimes one identity will trump another identity. And so, for instance, as you say, a, a more socially conservative identity may trump a racial or a gender identity. Yeah. So if if with all the advantages of hindsight, if you were running Biden's, you know, zipped into a time machine and were running Biden's campaign, I mean, in a way he won. So maybe you wouldn't do anything differently. Um but what would you what would you do differently about the Democrat campaign in general, if maybe not Biden specifically, given in the end he has won? Well, I mean, I, I think I have to recognise, of course, uh, a presidential candidate in America doesn't actually have very much control over their party anyway. Mm. Um, and in the modern world, one of the disadvantages of the modern world is we all get judged by the maddest people on our own side. <laughs> And so the most extreme person with any sort of elected prominence on your side is probably going to be the person who the other side will highlight as much as possible. Now, for the Republicans, the unusual thing is the most extreme person on their side was basically their president, but, uh, uh, which is a, a disadvantage. Um, but for the Democrats, I think uh, the key thing would be to ask people to always take a breath before they say things and think about... Who is it actually helping? Is it about making me feel good? Uh, or is it about actually uh, winning this election? Because winning this election, you know, the worst Democrat in the White House is going to be a lot better than Donald Trump. And even you know, people who I think are, are pretty crazy in many ways, like Bernie Sanders, would still obviously be far better mm -hmm. as a president uh, than Donald Trump. And therefore, as a Democrat, actually, is a very, very strong uh, principal point you should have been doing this year is thinking about how do I not screw up the campaign for uh, Joe Biden?
Yeah, and I mean, it's interesting to think if Bernie Sanders was an MP, where he would sort of fit in into the, the British political spectrum. But I think he would be, he would certainly be a left-wing Labour MP. But actually, apart, from, apart from his support for gun ownership. Yeah, uh, yeah, indeed. <laughs> but, uh, but, I don't, but he wouldn't be actually that left-wing in general on the British scale of things. I think is, there's his embrace of the word socialism um, is actually particularly unusual in the US, but in Britain it's not, you know, doesn't stick out that much. Yeah. Although I do think there is an extent to which people on the left in both Britain and the US underestimate just how many negative connotations there are with that word. And, and this may be part of the story when all the evidence is crunched over what happened in Florida. It does yeah. feel like that, particularly in Miami-Dade County, that a lot of voters were reacting to a Democrat party that they that to them seemed like it had become comfortable or was becoming comfortable with the word socialism. And there's a good there's a good good parallel from from the yeah the good good parallel from the commercial world, which is um, brand consultants say that your brand isn't what you say it is. Your brand is what people believe it is. Mm. And the word socialism is a perfect example. It has a bundle of very negative connotations for people. Um, and that bundle, you can't change quickly. Uh, and if you are determined to try and change it quickly, you will pay a cost in the short term. Mm. Uh, and I think that's true on a lot of issues. You've got to move your language uh, to, where, um, uh, to where people are. Uh, to recognize the language people use themselves uh, to, to talk about the world, not the language you might as a policy wonk um, or, or somebody who's really interested in one issue uh, talk about. Um, and, and there are lots of things, I think, on, on the Democrat part of uh, politics um, uh, that are things that people say on Twitter, but that hardly anyone in the public would ever say so you yeah, know the phrase latinx which is now used by a small proportion of democrats to talk about people who would have previously be called latino um is uh one of those words that i believe very few people in the latino community would use um and and it's 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 answering a fight that virtually nobody has outside a very small group of people who talk about language and i think there's a real danger we get pulled into a lot of that stuff um, because uh, it distracts us from the things we need to do, which find a way to talk to people um, uh, about the majority of uh, talk to the majority of the population. And I guess the the really good recent example of that being done successfully is with same sex marriage, where one of the key differences in how that issue was campaigned over especially in the US but also in other countries that also led to political success you know widespread legalization of same-sex marriage was framing it as an issue about the values that its opponents shared so talking about love and commitment as opposed to it being an issue about equalities now say, why do you or I or I would guess probably pretty much every listener think that same-sex marriage should be legal a major motivation is is the equalities argument yeah. but to persuade the sorts of people who needed to be persuaded to get the political majority behind it and to get it legalized 
that argument was not always a compelling one. And yeah. talk about, and a similar example with ID cards as well. I think, you know, why were ID cards, the introduction of ID cards under New Labour, was that in the end defeated? In part, it was, yes, there's a really good civil liberties argument, but the thing that persuaded a lot of the key swing groups were the government wants to make you pay 80 quid. Yeah. It, it's a very, a very sort of mercenary pragmatic argument and 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 the reason i use those two examples is i think those both were used those both were cases of framing an argument in a way that pitches to a different chunk of the political spectrum without selling out on the policy and i think sometimes exactly yeah absolutely absolutely agree and i think roy jenkins back in the 1960s had an angle on it where he said you know decriminalizing homosexuality um reducing censorship um allowing abortion they're all about what you call civilizing um or, or the flip side of that being what you might call not not having barbarism and saying look look actually if you tell the human stories of the people affected by this they are horrific they were people you know uh if you watch um the, book, the film about alan turing it's yeah it's somebody essentially being persecuted into suicide uh for being gay uh it's individual stories like that which are what reach out to people because you go do you think your neighbour should lose their job because of what they do in the privacy of their home? And people go, obviously not. Um, and I think there's plenty of issues like that where we need to humanise it more uh, and talk about the individuals uh, and worry less about the language. Because to be honest, the language is not the issue. When I was growing up in the um, uh, 1980s, I was sort of a teenager in the 1980s, um, you know, it was it was legal to be gay, but it was still uh, the vast majority of people uh, mm. had significant prejudice. Um, and I remember talking to people out and thinking about it because a friend of mine came out when we were at school, and we then did uh, a benefit gig mm. for the Terence Higgins Trust, uh, which was perceived as a sort of gay charity because it was working on HIV, uh, which was sort of perceived as a gay issue. There was a lot of prejudice there. But the honest truth is, I think the thing that changed more than anything in the following sort of five years was Graham Norton. Mm. Because Graham Norton became this massive mainstream TV personality who was utterly, I mean, he wasn't normal in the sense he's incredibly charming and funny and likable. But he was absolutely normal, non-threatening, ordinary mainstream and that meant there was somebody for the first time ever was a gay character in popular culture who wasn't the absurd camp of carry-on films or like what all gay characters have basically been in, in popular culture until then. And I think very often with culture, we've got to find a way, like, how do you make something uh, just feel normal and, and reasonable? And I think with, with trans rights at the moment, the challenge we have, uh, I think, is there are relatively few trans people yet in the public eye who had just seen uh, where people see past it. Mm. Uh, because once people start to see past it, it means when people try and go, well, trans, trans people are going to do something terrible, you go, that's ridiculous, it's Eric. Mm. You know, and, and I think that's, that's the thing where uh, progressives often quite uh, poor, electric, are thinking about how do you make it uh, just seem normal. Yeah. And, uh, and in terms of Graham Norton, I mean, actually coming over as a just a normal, friendly person is is actually a real skill on TV. So, yeah. so I, th- I think you're absolutely right that part of his impact was coming over in the way that he did 
but one shouldn't therefore in any way downplay the amount of skill and talent <laughs> that lay oh, behind. Oh yeah, it's enorm it's enormously skilled and talented. But it's and something again, I, I think uh one of the things uh that is well known in the advertising industry is uh like the really two major things that determine the success of every advert. One of which is just how many people see it. Mm. Um, that's an easy thing in one sense, you just throw money at it. Mm. Uh, but the other thing is how creative is it at finding a new way to repeat an old message? Uh, and you think the, um, the John Lewis Christmas ads are a classic of this because all they need to do every year basically is say, it's Christmas, you can feel emotional about it uh, and maybe buy something at our shop. But you know, at most, you see in those ads one product, you know, the year with Elton John, it was a piano. Uh, one year, you have, you have a dog on a trampoline, it was a trampoline. You have a penguin, it was a fluffy penguin. But it, was, it wasn't really about that. It wasn't selling that product. No, they, they didn't make their Christmas sales based on pianos and trampolines, did they? Those exactly. were a tiny bit of their revenue. Those are symbolic. And, and I think that's something progressives often, often forget, which is the more interesting we are and more engaging we are, the more successful our messages will be. Um, and, and an engaging, stupid message will trump uh, a clever and unengaging message. Uh, you know, I, I was struck 12 years ago, I did some work on why NHS staff weren't getting the flu vaccine. And one of the things we discovered was that they had the same myths about the flu vaccine as a broader population. Generally speaking, NHS communications have been too serious and boring and therefore haven't been read by the NHS staff but they had seen the myth that the flu vaccine included mercury. Yeah. Now, the reality is it does contain mercury, but the same amount as a tuna sandwich. Now, as soon as you hear tuna sandwich, as long as you eat tuna sandwiches, it sounds completely unthreatening. And you go, well, okay, that's fine. Yeah. Um, but the government had never done any communications like that. Uh, and therefore, uh, the myth persisted. Uh, and it was because, you know, of course, people come to it being too high-minded, saying, well, if we need to prove that vaccines are safe, we're going to, we need to uh, uh, you know, explain, you know, 10 pages worth of small print. Well, actually, you don't. You just need to uh, find interesting ways to make it clear. Yeah. So we've talked a lot about messaging. I wonder if maybe we should move on to talk a little bit about campaign organisation. Because I think if there were no opinion polls, if if this, the, what had happened, say, this year was, had happened 100 years ago, and historians were writing the story of the election, the really obvious story to tell would be that the incumbent really bungled the major issue of the time, but he became, he came surprisingly close to winning, because his opponent completely stopped grassroots campaigning for several months in the run up to the election. Yeah, that. I think if, if you think about the sorts of evidence historians typically have access to, it feels like that would sound like a very compelling story. Now, obviously, we know that the polls were to some extent faulty, so we don't know exactly what the true path of uh, support through the year was. But it would be it would have to be a really unusual combination of reasons for the polls being faulty and timing over those faults to not. To, to alter the basic picture, which is overall support doesn't seem to have changed very much in the last year. And for all of the huge amounts of grassroots effort, TV advertising, et cetera, it's just ended up being a bit of a stalemate. Um, so so one, uh, one conclusion is to say, you know, 
what the lessons really are about longer term branding, political positioning, etc. Not about mechanics of grassroots organisation. But the counter argument is to say, look at Stacey Abrahams and colleagues in Georgia and say, actually, you know what? That is all about grassroots organisation. And yeah. that's what really matters far more than maybe the TV ads in Georgia. So what's your take on on, on that question? Well, first of all, I think it's worth saying, despite Trump's appalling failings, you know, both in what an awful man he is and uh, how bad he was at the key policy stuff, his approval ratings have broadly been around 40% for whole four years he's been president. Uh, and that says something about polarization in America, that there's a very large block of voters who are not going to shift from the Republican Party in the short term. Um, and that's obviously much, if, if you need 50% to win and you're starting on 40%, well, that's a pretty big advantage. But I think then the second thing is, I think grassroots does matter, but it's, it's also worth remembering what's different between America and Britain. In Britain, broadly speaking, um, most people who want to be able to, uh, to be registered to vote are, are registered. Yeah. It's, it's not as high as we want. It's probably yeah, 80, 85%, but it, you know, it should be higher, but, but it's not horrifically bad. And there certainly isn't any organized voter suppression for waivers in America. In America, there is very clearly mass scale, uh, attempts to keep people off the electoral roll. Uh, I believe a few weeks, a few months before the election, a few hundred thousand people were taken off the electoral roll in Georgia, primarily from groups who were expected to vote um, a Democrat. Um, and that just doesn't happen in Britain. It can't, you know, uh, Islington Council yeah. can't find a way to identify Lib Dems the electoral roll and find an excuse to throw them off. It, it might not be terribly competent at finding people are privately renting, but it's not, it's not the same thing. Um, so I'd say uh, that's a big difference. And, and in Georgia, I think, and places like that, the big difference isn't actually the canvassing. Yeah. Uh, it, it's the voter registration. Yeah. And, and it's some basic numbers, which is 5 million votes got cast in Georgia uh, in the election, which is about double uh, what will be cast in next year's election in London. Mm. Um, so it, it's an extremely big place. We tend to forget. You know, we, we look at these states and we forget actually America's very big. Um, and it's very hard to canvas people on that scale, even if you're going at full tilt, because you know most canvassers will only do one or two sessions per campaign and won't talk to that many people in a session. And particularly, a lot of people are canvassing for the first time and quite inefficient because of that. So imagine the average canvasser talks to 25 people over the campaign. Well, you'd need 100,000 canvassers to talk to all of your voters once. 100,000 activists is a lot of people to recruit and manage. Um, on the other hand, the that number a bit of scale. So you said that's a hundred thousand across an electorate, basically double London's. Yeah, so fifty thousand. You know, in London would be the equivalent. Have fifty thousand people out canvassing. That is two two and a half times the Lib Dems' current total membership in London, and probably it's what one in ten party members, maybe typically might canvas so for every existing Lib Dem canvasser you'd need to have 20 or 25 canvassers to to achieve that sort of coverage just to give that a bit of context um well I think the uh what's different uh, the, the voter registration thing slightly different which is they re registered 800,000 people to vote in I believe in Georgia in the last sort of year or so um and and clearly the assuming that 
80% of those people voted, and the 80% of those voted uh, Democrat, uh, then the net number of extra votes is probably sort of 400,000 votes, which is maybe 300,000. But it, it's, it's clearly way bigger than Biden's margin of victory. Uh, so if you look at the voter registration, well, the question is, well, is it possible that that was achieved by the Democrats and their allies' efforts? And that seems to me to be possible it, it was done that way. And that maybe there would have been other places in the country where if they had been canvassing face-to-face -face this year, uh, they would have um, achieved more. And I, and I think that's really interesting because I've, I'm pretty sure that if they had been doing face-to-face -face stuff, they wouldn't have done much less digitally. Mm. Those people who did canvassing wouldn't have done much less activity online. Mm. Um, maybe they'd have done a little bit less phone. Yeah. Okay. But they may even have done more because if you're out canvassing, that generates stories, it generates photo opportunities. You know, they just, there's a very natural bit of social media sharing that you can do before, during, and after canvassing. So, yeah, absolutely. And, and also, I think for a lot of people, including me, you, you get motivated by canvassing because you, you meet people and you have these interesting conversations. So I think if you then say, well, maybe if they'd all been out doing voter registration uh, in all those states, maybe it's possible there's another state that would have swung. Uh, so it could have made some difference. I, mean, yeah. I, I think it's still not as important as the message. Yeah. And obviously it, it, it connects to a message quite deeply because if you have a right message, it motivates people to, to both be canvassing, but also to want to register to vote. Yes. So I think uh, you can never disentangle those anyway. Yeah. And, and on the sort of scale that you talked about, that only will have mattered because Georgia was so close. You know, it's not the scale that could have, say, tipped Texas or probably even Florida. Um, and, well, and now, that said, not. in 2016 and 2020, there have been several swing states that have been in that sort of very close margin so that's not to sort of knock its value because it could be the sort of margin that that swings an election but it, but if you're trying to draw a lesson from it it seems like you're having to do that you would have to do that huge scale of activity in quite a few different states to have a decent chance of therefore having included the states that are the really close ones but i think that's right but i think you you, you do it hoping that happens in at least one state and therefore you've got one state more. Yeah. Uh, and if you don't do it, therefore you've lost that state. But secondly, I think the long-term impact is really important, which is it means your chances of winning elections at state or local level are also high. Mm. And it's worth you know, remembering in America, actually, most power resides at state level. Um, in, in America, actually, it's even more important because... Uh, redistricting is done at state level and therefore gerrymandering has yeah, absolutely so if you're not in control when that happens it has long-term impacts so i think you do it for the long-term impact um but with a short a small short-term benefit uh but that also probably means you don't put huge amounts of money into it it shouldn't actually be that expensive not compared to the scale of american elections i think in britain it's much more of a dilemma because, of course, voter registration is, is a, a less challenging problem for us. Voter suppression isn't a problem for us. Um, and, of course, our budgets are much smaller. Therefore, um, we're not, uh, we haven't got sort of £5 million sitting around spare to spend on hundreds of organisers. 
the way that an American campaign, you know, five million pounds is, mm. is, you know, is a fraction of one percent. Yeah. Yeah. But, but I, I guess the lesson for Britain is about that point that what what has worked for the Democrats is not so much lots of money at the last moment on this stuff, but it's the long term sustained grassroots organizing. You know, and, and what Stacey Abrahams and her colleagues in Georgia have been doing, it that's not what they've done this year. That's been a sustained multi-year effort. And and therefore that points towards I guess quite a neat fit with one of the lessons for us from the 2019 general election, which is you really need that grassroots campaign infrastructure in place over a sustained period of time. You can't just assemble it in the immediate run up to a general election. Absolutely. And, and, and one of the reasons for that is so much of this, this is about relationships. It's relationships in the organisation between the people who do it, who can work together effectively. It's people uh, who are occasional canvassers who are trained, but know that they'll join a, um, a positive group. It's people in the broader community who may not actually ever do anything, but know that the party is active and therefore are more sympathetic to it. Uh, and the thing that always strikes me is actually these places in Georgia, a lot of them have community organizing um, that goes back 100 years into the civil rights movement. And you know, there, were, there were times in the 1920s when they were making progress, and then at times again in the 50s and 60s they were making progress, and each time they've got, got a slightly higher high watermark. Um, and the, uh, that only works if you don't give up. And when you do give up in places, uh, rebuilding it takes a very long time. Mm. And I, I guess the other sort of lesson perhaps from this is that in, in this area is it looks like the Biden campaign was pretty savvy at understanding what the level of support was in different states. If you look at where Biden spent his time in the immediate run up to polling day, lots of time in Pennsylvania, for example. Um, and, you know, he didn't make the, the mis some of the mistakes in terms of his itinerary that Clinton made in 2016 it feels like they had a pretty good idea of how to try to maximize their electoral college outcome for you know the level of support they were running at and that that targeting as we would think about it in the uk is obviously a very relevant lesson uh for well all parties in britain but perhaps particularly parties like ourselves i absolutely agree and, and i think uh, i mean it's an irony that four years ago many of the states that helped biden win like georgia and arizona uh, were places where Hillary Clinton was derided for having tried mm. too hard in. Um, it's also, I think, worth noting, and this is very relevant to Britain, uh, the states you can win change over time. So, you know, places like Iowa and Ohio were um, won by very large margins by Obama mm. in 2012. Um, places like Arkansas were won by Clinton. Obviously, obviously he's from the South, but there were... There were some places that used to be won quite regularly uh, by the Democrats, but now seem quite some way off. Mm. Uh, there are some places that have gone in the opposite direction where they used to be swing and they've become strong Democrat, like New Washington State. Or, or uh, California is the fantastic example. California yeah. used to be, you know, a pretty solidly Republican state. You know, it had a, you know, elected Republican governors, um, who you know often went on to the national political stage as well, of course, and you know vote you know voted Republican. I think even as recently as 1988, if I remember correctly, the Dukakis Bush election. So and that that's and now it appears to be so heavily and 
Democrat, not just in terms of vote numbers, but in terms of the sort of ideology of the state. And yet that's a relatively recent transformation, that the idea of, of California just being an automatic tick for the Democrats in a presidential election. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the lessons for the Liberal Democrats is, and indeed for any political party, is like, just because somewhere was important to you in the past for winning doesn't mean it will automatically stay so. So firstly, you, know, you need to constantly renew your, your, your support in those areas. But also, sometimes you know, the places that are winnable at the next election, for the Liberal Democrats specifically, won't be the same places that were winnable in 1997 or even 2005 or 2010. They have, those places have changed over time. Uh, and if you uh, don't accept that, you can end up wasting a lot, uh, a lot of effort. And I yeah. think the Labour Party in Britain is probably going to face that problem. The next election is going to be, uh, to what degree do they accept for some places they've lost, they probably won't win back uh, realistically. And what are the new places that they can win? Um, and you know, I think suspect a lot of those places for Labour will actually be uh, you know, towns in the south, uh, which have, have got more liberal left over time, um, which is going to be quite an emotional challenge for them. Uh, and I guess equally, I think, for Liberal Democrats, mm -hmm. our challenge will sometimes be, well, there might be some places in the southwest that are quite socially conservative and probably becoming more so, but are, are going to become very hard for us to win over time uh, compared to other places we haven't traditionally won, which will become easier. Mm. And I, I, in terms of making those judgments, I think one other lesson that the US elections reinforces, if you take, for example, Georgia, it's it's not just that there was a theoretical argument that Georgia was becoming a possibility for a Democrat to win in a presidential election, therefore piling the resources. It's there was the evidence on the ground and in ballot boxes at previous non-presidential elections. So although Stacey Abrams, when she ran for statewide office, didn't win, she actually came very close. And so there's a, there was a set of evidence there um, that you could point to. And clearly the Biden campaign looked at it and was persuaded by it, just as it appears, you know, the Biden campaign seems to have been savvy relatively early on that Iowa was probably not that you know, yeah. not that winnable. They don't seem to have put the effort in in the last few days and weeks in the way that they did say to Georgia. And I think that point about being evidence driven in your decisions is a really important one, because in the Lib Dems, there's a little bit of a culture still of viewing a target seat as, as it were, a status to be awarded than to be earned. The, you know, the, the way you get to be a target seat is to persuade someone to make you a target seat rather okay. than to demonstrate the evidence as to why you should be a target seat. And the reverse applies as well in terms of, you know, the most controversial decisions normally are about seats that have been Lib Dem in the relatively recent past. Should they be a target seat or not? Again, an awful lot of that is driven by, you know, persuasion rather than evidence, if you see what I mean, although obviously evidence can be persuasive, but that sense of, right, who do I need to talk to to get them to change their mind, as opposed to what do I need to do to demonstrate evidence that this is winnable? Absolutely. Uh, and I think there's one other thing, which is, I think, recruiting really good candidates matters, uh, because people notice how good your candidates are. Yeah. And particularly, well, with general elections, it's harder uh, to break, break, it's not impossible, obviously, but it's harder to break the sort of two-party duopoly in a lot, a lot of the country. At other elections, 
the public are utterly open to voting any way if they've seen a good candidate. Uh, and that's obviously true of mayoral elections. It's true of local elections. And it's true of devolved elections. And, and all of those have an opportunity for interesting and high quality candidates to, to make their mark. Do you wish to declare an interest as a candidate at this point, Rob? Well, as a candidate in the London election, I think we're very lucky to have a good, very good mayoral uh, candidate, but also uh, to have a very good bench of uh, London Assembly candidates uh, yeah. behind her. Um, but it, I don't think it's interesting that uh, in London now, um, just talking to voters, um, people don't feel that they have to vote with their usual mm. national vote when it comes to, to London. They are very open-minded to voting for somebody else. Uh, and they are willing to mark people down for failures of delivery. Um, and and that's, that's a great opportunity. Uh, and it's actually very good for everyone involved. Yeah. Excellent. That's been absolutely fascinating. So thank you really very much for that, Rob. And Pleasure. best of luck with your own endeavours as a candidate. Uh, listeners can find Rob on Twitter at Rob Blackie, Donald Trump at Real Donald Trump, myself at Mark Pack and this podcast at Bar Chart Podcast. Do look out in the show notes for follow-up links to what we've discussed, including that earlier podcast that Rob and I did uh, earlier this year where you can see how well or not we foretold what was going to happen in the US presidential election and I think the conclusions from that discussion about messaging are still very relevant as well and if you like listening please do tell others about this podcast and give it a rating or review in your favourite podcast app thank you until next time